You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn, and welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business world. Today, our guest is Russell Robinson, the CEO of the Jewish National Fund, which he has chaired and headed since 1997, over 25 years of leadership. Russell is a graduate of the University of Texas in Austin, currently lives in New York City, where all major Jewish organizations seem to be headquartered. Russell, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about uh, being here. Well, you lead probably one of the largest Jewish philanthropies in the world, and I wanted to get a handle on uh, your background and and uh, the JNF and everything else. We'll start with the JNF a little bit. Uh, you've been the CEO and the head of it for many, many years. So give me a little uh, statement about the vision of JNF, what your goals are today. So the Jewish National Fund is 122 years old, Gary, and, you know, that puts it in that legacy organization uh, category. Uh, I happen to believe that legacy organizations are legacy because they stand the best of time and they've been able to, to make things happen. And I think the Jewish National Fund is proof of that. An organization that started out based upon purely hopes and dreams and people contributing without having the a nation of Israel for 2,000 years, and yet they had to to believe in in something to to uh, to participate, and we try to keep that same philosophy today, which is about hopes, dreams, and visions. So, at Jewish National Fund USA, I always tell people, Gary, that we don't do any projects; we do vision, and under vision are a lot of projects. But we try to figure out if we're going to do this. Why are we doing that? What's the rippling effect of it? What is it going to make a difference in five, 25, or 100 years from now? And and that's how we have uh, uh, really laid out our roadmap. Well, that's that's a very good approach. I mean, a lot of nonprofits tend to be more short-term visioning, and they do year-to-year projects or short-term projects. So this is a very good aspect. What are some of the larger projects you're doing right now with JNF? So... Uh, we, I'll give you on, on three different categories. In Israel, we took on about 25 years ago the water catastrophe that was facing Israel. Now, it wasn't a popular thing. It's not uh, people raising money for water 25 years ago would have been how to send out your retirement letter, not how to be a product, uh, changing a dynamic. But we felt that there was a, uh, a sophisticated philanthropy uh, that was changing in the world. And it was a need. It was a cause and it was a problem. So 25 years ago, we went out to raise money for sewage water, to be quite honest. Not so sexy. But we knew that sophisticated philanthropy can work. If you would explain it to people, it's not, quote, as sexy. It's not easy to sell on, on, a, on a billboard, but it has the conversation opportunity that you need to have. And in that time, we added to Israel's water resources, 12.5% of the water resources today are in Israel are because of our work on 250 reservoirs and recycle centers, which Israel reuses 
90% of its water, Gary, 90. The country next to it is Spain at 27%. The United States is at five. So that's vision, but it was sophisticated uh, philanthropy. We then took on the Negev, which is 60% of the land of Israel. It had a very small part of the population, but we knew we had to bring 500,000 people to the Negev, to the south part of Israel. We set up a plan a blueprint negative, we called it, we wrote it, we spent two and a half years studying, devising out what would make those things happen. And I could tell you, we've changed from the city of Beersheba, which was losing 3% of its population today, to per year today, it's now the fastest growing city in Israel, uh, to the place in the Arva below the Dead Sea in Eilat. To the go north, we set a 300,000 people vision to do there. And then on Zionist education, how to connect people to Israel in today's world. And we bought a high school in Israel, an American semester abroad high school in Israel, Alexander Musk High School in Israel. We went from 500 students to 1,600 students. We're going to hit 2,500 students in the next uh, two years and 5,000. They're going for, for 18 weeks, a semester abroad in Israel. We are seeing that people want to be part of a great enterprise, vision, and excitement. Well, you know, all of us grew up in Jewish homes uh, 30, 40, 50 years, well, actually, probably 60 years ago for me. And we had the little blue cans, the JNF cans to put money in, you know, every Shabbat. Uh, as we lit candles, we put money in it. And that's one vision of, a, of, a, of a, a early fundraising. How do you reach the masses of people today, or is it more of a major gift organization? So it's a very good question, Gary. And we set a, a blueprint, a roadmap 10 years ago of a billion dollars. Uh, people were laughing at us. You're going to raise a billion dollars in 10 years. So the answer is we were uh, wrong. We raised a billion dollars in nine years. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but we did that in, a, in an effort in which we set up and designed our vision for the next 10 years, both on what we were going to be doing with the money, but also how were we going to be bringing in the money. So we have added net new donors, over 100,000 net new donors into our campaign. That's a concerted effort to make sure that now, as you know, in most campaigning, you decide you're going to take on those low, small, middle, or large end. We knew we had to be something around for the next 100 years. So when you want to be around for the next 100 years, I'm not telling you million-dollar or $2 million gifts are not important to me. They're very important. I love them. But you you also want to sustain yourself with a lot of thousand and five thousand dollar gifts, and we have done that throughout our campaign in a very concerted effort to make sure that we're bringing in yes children, but we're bringing in the fastest growing part of our donor demographic. Gary is our twenty two to forty year olds, our J and F future. So we're bringing them in every year. Growth, growth. From, and they to be counted as a JNF Future Jewish National Fund, you got to give at least $360. You can't, you can come to all the events you want. You can enjoy all of our events, but you're not counted because you paid for an event. That's, that is a transactional donor. We wanted a real committed donor. So you got to at least give 360. Most of them give thousand, five thousand. We even have million dollar donors in that category. We went after um, uh, donors at five and ten and twenty-five thousand. We knew that that middle part of the campaign was so important to keep strong, even during good and bad times. So when other people in two thousand and eight suffered, we did not go down in our campaign, 
and our campaign has continuously increased in dollar amounts and in donor amounts. And matter of fact, we're setting a new roadmap because we completed this one, and it's called A Million Voices for Israel. We're at 600,000 donors today. We want to hit a million donors within 10 years. And what is your annual campaign raising these days? So we're bringing in about $130 million a year and uh, been increasing every year. Uh, so 25 years ago, we were at $17 million a year. Quite a growth spurt. <laughs> and it's been, listen, a lot of hard work, but a lot of, but again, I, I say, Gary, it was a lot of conversation on tomorrow. And I give our volunteers, we call them ambassadors here, not lay leaders, uh, a lot of credit because you have to decide that you're going to invest money for tomorrow. It's not so easy. And right. you don't get to see the great, you know, I put up a building, I put your name, it's done, we'll go to the next thing. This, I'm investing a lot of money into tomorrow, and tomorrow you and I aren't going to be around for that 25 and 30 years. But if you want your organization to be around for the next 50 years, invest in that 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 25-year-old, and 30-year-old. The return on investment is tough to measure in one year and two years, but you will sure measure it in 25. Well, it's interesting that your approach to that, because I spent seven years with the Technion raising money on the West Coast for them. And uh, we had a $10 billion campaign uh, also, uh, and we raised ended, ended up raising $13 million, but it took us 15 years to do it. But the hardest thing to, for a, a fundraising exec running a region to do with most senior execs is to say that $5,000 gift could be a million-dollar gift in five years. We have to bring them along slowly and get them to understand what our cause is or what the vision is and then bring them to that next level of gift. And you seem to be, uh, that's really your target market in a lot of ways. I look, at we have something that I think university fundraising doesn't get to do, just because of the essence of what it's about. Usually it doesn't have the staff, it doesn't have those kind of resources, and they are looking for the major, major gifts. We understand that we have to be both an Amcha People's Campaign and a major gift campaign. So we give our fundraisers at the beginning of the year, yeah, they have financial goals, but they also have gift units. And so I'm not going to tell you that the person that brings in a lot of million-dollar gifts and no gift units doesn't also get praised. Of course they do. But I'm going to tell you the person that brings in a lot of gift units and maybe not the million-dollar gifts also gets praised. So, um, you know, we're, we're constantly measuring on how to add new donors. And, and I think it sends a, a message of validity to the major donors. It says to the major donors, you know, you're right. This uh, 28-year-old isn't giving at the $2 million level that you are, but I got a lot of 28-year-olds, and I can assure you, one, two, 15, or 20 are going to. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis. They provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures in compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. 
They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com, J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R.com. Well, I like to tell the story. Uh, when I joined the Technion, I went and met a, a CEO in Silicon Valley, and he came to breakfast with me and handed me a $20,000 check right across the table. And I said, what's this? He says, my gift. That's what you're here for, to ask me for a gift. And I said, no, I'm here to get to know you and understand where you're coming from and what your relationship with the Technion is and all that stuff. And when we had breakfast, he left and moved on. His, and I didn't take the check. He took it back. About nine months later, he did give me a check for a million and a half dollars. But yeah, I wouldn't I would advise that as the way to go. But you know, you have to understand where people are coming from. And I think you you be doing a, a good job of that. W- tell me a little bit about how you got into the fundraising world to begin with. So uh, I listen, I started in the in the business world. I was in the carpet cleaning business in El Paso, Texas, of all places. And I I grew up not necessarily loving being Jewish because I hated Talmud Torah class and Sunday school and uh, you know, bar mitzvah was at a time for a uh, cash flow opportunity and a release from prison all at the same time. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, recruited by one of the uh, Jewish professionals who was working at the JCC. He wanted to start a resident camp in El Paso, for El Paso and Albuquerque. And so he told me the great lie that most professionals tell their people, don't worry, we don't. you don't need to do anything. So I knew I had to give money. I understood giving money was an important thing. I had never been to camp before. So I figured, okay, so I'll, it's an adventure. And about two weeks before the camp opened, the JCC fired him. <laughs> he packed up and left town, even though the camp was separate. And I figured, how hard is it to run a camp? I'm running a pretty big company here. So it was the hardest two weeks of my entire life. But I saw the joy of the work to be done. A couple of years later, they had asked me to run the JCC because they fired the person who fired the person. And I did that. And then uh, I said, uh, somebody sat down with me and said, you know, you love this work so much, you should do it. And I sold my business and went into it. I went into the national UJA system, uh, part of the federation top system, and and worked myself up the system. And and I was the number two at national UJA before it was JFNA. Um and I was leaving 25, 20, almost six years ago to go to another private industry I was offered a job to. And I got a call from the blue, uh, from Ronald Lauder of SD Lauder, who became the president of Jewish National Fund. I didn't know him. I always tell the joke that I have some friends who always would call and say Ben-Gurion's on the phone, etc. And so they said Ronald Lauder was on the phone. I didn't know him, so I figured it was a joke. And I said, I'll take uh, two pounds of cold cream. And I heard this voice say, okay. And I said, who is this? And he asked me to come into his office for some, give him some advice. Figured, huh? Ronald Lauder wants my advice. Why not? So I set up in about an hour into the meeting. He kept talking about we. And I kept realizing it was only two of us in the room. So I didn't know who we was. I said, Mr. Lauder, he said, listen, I just took over as president. I want you to be CEO. I said, I don't really know everything JNF does. I'm not looking for the job. I have another job. Anyway, the short story is he harassed me for a week. It's a, lo- it's a loving story. And I've had very few bad days of the decision I made to come here. It was a reorganization, restructuring that you have to do, trying to make, I believe, nonprofit is a tax status, not a business philosophy. 
Um, I was able to utilize those talents coming into the organization, and I and I have enjoyed the learning, the teaching, and I and I never would want to do the first two years of my life here again, but I could teach anybody about it. <laughs> do you still have roots down in El Paso? So I I still have a lot of friends in El Paso. I and uh, uh, very few family members left in El Paso, but. Uh, um, if you leave the temple and before you turn on to, from leaving the parking lot of the temple, you have to go past my old home. So I think I'm going to buy it back and put a sign up, but I don't know. Well, at least you can buy back your home in El Paso. I can't do that in the Oakland, uh, San Francisco area. That's impossible. <laughs> You're right, but I, I hear El Paso is getting in the, you know, I can still buy it back, but it's higher than I thought. <laughs> um, what are some of the greatest challenges of running a large organization? today? Listen, I think that uh, it, this is something that you, I believe as professionals, we have to, if it's one thing I try to teach is this, sometimes I fail, but I try. I think I'm a great CEO, but Microsoft never called me. So I, I came to realize, uh, um, Gary, that I can raise money for a great cause. And if I'm very smart, all of these people who are giving me a lot of money, somehow they figured out how to wake up in the morning, go to work, raise a family, and have enough money to give it to me. So maybe I should suck their brains out for free. Not only for free, they pay me for it. <laughs> so one of the things that we do at Jewish National Fund, I think better than anybody, and we work very hard on it every day, and we're trying to get better at it every moment is utilizing the strengths of your, we call them ambassadors here, uh, of your donors, of people who are participating. It is scary because as a fundraiser, you're talking to somebody who's given you money. So there's already very difficult situation because you're getting from a client, so to speak, the dollars, and you're asking the client to give advice and to be involved and give the dollars. And that's, I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm telling you that it's not smart if you don't do it. There's no marketing people you're going to hire that are better than the marketing people that are making a lot of money to give you money from the marketing department or from the engineering that we're doing on projects in Israel or in real estate or in in, in business in general. Uh, lawyers, we have a legal group here, 27 lawyers that meet every month to do pro bono work for us. And they have to give $10,000 minimum to be on that committee. <laughs> and and I have to tell you, we sometimes have a Jewish National Fund $2,000 of legal bills for the year because we've utilized the talents of our people. I think nonprofits have gotten away from that. They have too many times the fear of that involvement of that leadership um, is a is something that we that I believe the strength of what we are and what we do and it's important. Uh, there, uh, you could talk to our president or our board of directors, and they'll tell you the ins and outs. Or people that are involved in a project in the northern part of Israel could tell you the ins and outs of every part of our project because there's not secrets here. It's an open book, and transparency and involvement I think is is the hardest. I think it's the most difficult. We have you have a group of people, especially younger people, that they get tired, you know, very quickly. You know, their their interest level goes thing. But you have to get them to sit down and say, listen, if you want to be part of the decision making, you got to be part of the learning. Right. If you be part of the learning, you get you got to give, you got to learn, and you can be involved. 
And so we have been very good and I think growing from young people to older people to being involved in the organization. And I think that's the toughest thing about it. Hiring, listen, I am a great believer. I tell people who are going to be managers all the time. My first talk to them, Gary, is always this. You're now going to be a manager. You're going to have the ability to hire somebody. I want you to think about who you're hiring. Look at them in the eyes. And somehow in that last interview, in your head, I want you to have the conversation about firing them. Because it is you're changing somebody's life both ways. And you better be prepared for the firing before not just the hiring, because you have to be responsible for both. And I do that because I want them to know how serious hiring is, supervising is. Your professional staff that work with you are the your family. You're spending more waking hours with them than anybody else. Treat them with that kind of respect. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Well, someone asked me what once, what's your legacy in leadership? And I said, my legacy in general with all the organizations I've worked with has only been about three or four in my career is looking back on the people that I developed and raised and brought to the forefront. And now they're running organizations. I remember there's a woman I took in when I ran Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco as a development associate, you know, the, the bottom, bottom level. And now she's a development director of a major organization in San Francisco. It took her 15, 20 years to get there. But looking back on it, we gave her all the tools she needed and we saw it in her, you know, and that's the hardest thing about hiring is seeing the people and looking inside of them and saying, do they have what it takes to make it make it great? You know, you know, I'll tell you, Gary, we just because it happened this week, there was a young uh, uh, person who was leaving us. And I believe it's our fault. Because we promoted him too fast. Now he's leaving for a better job and an opportunity. And, and, and I believe that he'll always love the time he did here. But he took another job that's not an elevated job because he got put himself and put, we put him in a situation that he wouldn't have been a success in. And sometimes you're, you're right. It's developing and sometimes knowing, hey, just because this person's exciting and great, maybe you should wait a little bit longer to break them in before you 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 move them up to the sports car series. <laughs> I remember when I left a position at uh, Union Bank years ago and made it to the nonprofit world back in the 90s. The woman that was my number two, we moved her up to number one. And about a year later, she says, why did I want this job? I had fun seeing my clients. Now I'm just bogged down in paperwork. And I go, oh. well, you know, <laughs> that's part of the life of uh, of a manager, you know. 
Right, but you, but we have to explain that to people, and sometimes oh, they, course. you know, listen. Everybody jumps into it, and I and I use it as a case because it just happened. But I, but the personnel is a big issue to me. It's always a big issue. It's just you know, uh, I see too many people. I I love this work that I do, Gary. I know how great you were in it, and you loved it, and 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 I just want more people to get into it and love it with all the toughness. Listen, it's it's a it's a battleground of problems as well, but. Boy, do you get to do some great things with, about uh, the world. Well, I do a lot of development work. I work at one of the local universities, and I talk to their business students about careers in nonprofit work and what it's all about. And they have no idea because there's no subject matter in school. You can't get a BS in fundraising. Right. <laughs> you know, at all. And whoever thought I'd be a fundraiser, or you, you would be a fundraiser. You were running your own business at one time, you know. But yeah, but it's, a, but it's a, it's a business. Yeah, definitely. I talk a lot about mentoring in, in my talks around the country when I speak. Do you have any mentors in your life that help you develop the way you are today? Yeah, that's a great question. I just came from a wedding uh, of a young woman whose grandfather was one of my mentors. And I said to her when I met her at 13 uh, with him as a joke, I said, you know, whenever you get married, I'll be there. And by gosh, I was there. I mean, I ended up mentoring her later in time as well, but her father was a mentor. I believe that that's one of the most important things we can do and we should find is people to mentor. Don't be, it's on the, you know, I don't know. Sometimes people say, well, if you have so many mentors, does that show weakness? I said, no, it's your strength. You know, I mean, you know, there's so much to learn out there from people. So I've had some great mentors in the professional field of fundraising. You know, Irving Bernstein led the uh, Jewish National Fund. He taught me some great skill sets. He taught me some skill sets I wouldn't want to follow. But Herb Friedman, I knew very short. He was a guy that had zero business sense, but boy, he can sell anybody anything. I had um, uh, Stan Horowitz, Stanley Horowitz, who uh, had couldn't sell anybody anything, but boy, did he have an organizational chart. I Mel Bloom, you worked at Technion. Uh, Mel Bloom was one of those organizational uh, uh, giants. I mean, he, he, he knew every T and every I and uh, would keep you up until four o'clock in the morning to make sure that everything was covered properly, you know, and, and <laughs> you learn from those kind of things. So you, you should have mentors and in, 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 in the, on the non-professional side, just find people who are always going to help and, and they're going to be around. Don't be scared of it. And then for yourself, I take on every summer. I don't have the time. I do it. I always say I'm not going to do it, but I always take on two or three of these mentorships that people call and say, I need a mentor for this project that I'm doing for, for work that I'm doing. I need for school. I, I never say no to not to seeing a young person. I meeting a young person this week in between meetings because they want to talk about coming into this field. So I think you have to be a mentor all the time and just keep searching mentors. That's very true. So my Mel Bloom story for you, because I actually worked with him for a number of years. I was a I was a first year guy with Technion. He, I'm in Chicago at a, a AFP conference, and we're out with a half a dozen Technion uh, staff members. And Mel's hosting us for dinner at a beautiful steak restaurant. And he turns to me and he says, "Well, you're from California. You pick the wine." And I'm thinking, well. Yeah, I'm from California. I know a lot of great wineries, but like what price point are we thinking about here? <laughs> so I kind of went mid-range and he was happy. It was, it worked out okay, but uh, he, he was a great guy to work with. No question. I'll, I'll tell you a Mel Bloom story real quick. Just that I was in a, it was a trip to Israel 
we had one of our professionals who not necessarily was always organized and not always telling 100% the facts. And so Mel's like going through the names, you know, John Doe, you know, yeah, we're talking to him tomorrow, Fred Doe, we're talking to him. And so he turns this one person who says, so, um, you know, Lily Doe. And he goes, oh, yeah, we're talking to her tomorrow. She goes, that's good because she's been dead for 10 years. It'll be <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, so we talked about your ambassadors. We talked about your young donors and and, and the youth movement, so to speak, uh, young adults. Uh, what about women in philanthropy? How do you guys do in that area? There are more and more women becoming philanthropists. And actually, in many cases, the women are the philanthropists, but the men meet with us. Uh, what is your uh, take on that? So this is, an again, it's an interesting part because I think the world is changing and yet it's not. So you got two sides. We have a very vibrant Women for Israel campaign. Now, if you're the head of the Women's for Israel campaign, you believe that anybody that's a woman is in your campaign. But if you're a woman, you could choose whether you want to be in the Women for Israel campaign or a lawyer for Israel, or you're not put in any category you're just part of the board of directors or major donors or whatever it may be so there's that push and pull because i think years ago it was very cut and dry if you're a woman you're in the woman's campaign and if you happen to break out of the woman's campaign because you were one of those people they allowed in the you know smoking room that you were just one of those uh those that we allowed out or they allowed in but today the diversity of who our board of directors is, who our major donors are, who our campaign cabinet is, who our leadership is, is not any more of those smoking rooms. It's as much woman as man, and they're they're sitting there, you know, completely equal. But you're trying to keep a vibrant women's campaign because there is, first off, a group of people that want it. Number two, it's a great catchment to grab as you would for lawyer for Israel or doctor for Israel or or young or young leader for Israel, whoever it would be. But I'm telling you, it's a difficult conversation today than it wasn't 10 years ago because the Women for Israel leadership believe you're a woman, you're in my campaign. The woman has many more choices today to say, I don't mind being in the women's campaign, but I don't want to be stigmatized. I can't be in the, the, the quote, the other room. And what we're finding is great leadership coming from all different points and people can sort of choose their path or be it. They could be a lawyer for Israel and be a major donor. But I think it's part of the conversation that we have to look at for what is tomorrow in the Jewish community, Gary. It's a very interesting fact. Women are more educated. Jewish women are more educated than the general community. That's just a fact. That fact also puts households. There's some high percentage. I believe it's 40% of households today that the women in the Jewish world, that the women are making the determination of where to live because of their job. Now, that means you, you're following a different journey than you were before. Two is that women, Jewish women, are having children for the most part at 30 to 35. Our, my parents' generation had their, their kids at 22. Right. By the time they were 30, 35, they could volunteer anywhere because they had a babysitter at home called their oldest child. Today, at 35, you just had your first or second child, 
and babysitters at 50 or $100 an hour, you're not going to be volunteering. So your volunteer world changes. The time of meetings change. Six o'clock meetings are unheard of because what was okay 10 years ago today, I'm coming home from work. I, you know, as, as a working uh, uh, mother, I don't have time to go to a six o'clock. You want to make the meeting at nine o'clock, I'll make it. So those are the challenges that we face. And we're trying to always ask those questions, not necessarily always having the answers, but always asking the questions. So as we get ready to wrap up uh, the podcast, let me ask you a few questions. When you're not working for JNF and for Israel, what do you like to do? I love fly fishing. I don't do it enough. I love fly fishing. I love going into streams. Matter of fact, uh, your friend of mine, Tony, and I, when we were kids, we used to do it a lot. Um, and uh, uh, so I love fly fishing. Um, I, I, I'm one of these terrible... Uh, uh, constant readers of articles and information, and, and sometimes I get uh, caught up. And I'm also uh, addicted to ancestry and demo and, and uh, uh, ancestry issues. So I'm a member of all the ancestry.com and legacy.com and and all of them and and uh, myheritage.com. And so I believe that finding out about your your uh, uh, background is an important thing and. So I, I sometimes get obsessed with it. So I spend like two or three hours online until I hear the ding of the phone. And then I say, oh, I got to get off. <laughs> well, it does sound like an interesting project. Uh, I actually did some work, a consulting project for a, uh, basically a, a heritage record keeping kind of organization that's trying to get started in the, in the East with a guy in Montreal who's uh, doing Polish ancestry work. And uh, it's very interesting, very dynamic, because the records are opening up that weren't there before. And uh, so finding finding different things, different opportunities for people to find their roots uh, is, is a very important thing. Um, fly fishing is interesting. I saw one of my biggest donors in San Francisco was uh, 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 Rhoda Goldman of Blessed Memory, who uh, loved her fly fishing. <laughs> She'd go every summer up to the property up in, I want to say it was Montana, maybe in Idaho, I don't know which. And that was what she did, fly fishing. And uh, I, something about going in a stream and fly fishing, it doesn't. And and I'm one of those that I'll tell the story about the big one that got away. I don't care. Uh, I just love the idea about being out, the the solitude and the quiet and serenity of yeah, it all. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Well, Rabbi Steve Leader from Wilshire Boulevard Temple in L.A. Uh, is a big fisherman, and he takes a group of uh, members or donors, if you will, on fishing trip every year. So I went a few years ago maybe four or five years ago now, and I, I learned two things about fishing. One is I love it for about two hours. After that, I'm done. Uh, and he's good for eight to 10 hours of fishing. <laughs> I'm one of those that could sit out and lose track of time. <laughs> well, that's very good. Uh, anything else we should know about uh, uh, JNF or your career that I didn't ask you? No, again, I think that it's, I, I go back to the beginning, it's a 122-year organization that's always uh, looking at itself as a, a, not as the mission reborn, but the organization reborn to energize. I think that uh, to think about decisions that are made, we make here, we uh, hard, hard, hard decisions on everything we do is going to make an impact in five and 25 years. And, and if it's not, why are we doing it? And uh, um, and 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 I think that the exciting thing about being part of Jewish National Fund Legacy 
is that we have a proven track record of making it happen. And I think that the great thing about all legacy organizations, I think they get a bad rap, is that they've the the ones that say, well, I like to be in these small little mo, mo, you know moving organizations. I take nothing away from everybody and anybody. But legacy organizations uh, um, keep going. A lot of these other organizations don't. They're always based on one or two people. And I think that what happens is, is in philanthropy, Gary, giving is about not just giving. It's about getting other people to join you. And in an organization like Jewish National Fund, you get to do that. Give and get people to join. Well, people are interested in looking at the JNF. Your website is jnf.org. JNF.org. We have a national conference happening in, in it's going to be a global conference in uh, Denver, Colorado, at the end of November. And it's uh, going to be the largest Jewish gathering, uh, a pro Israel gathering in the United States. And, and uh, they can come on and, and register, come to our, our global conference. And uh, you come to Israel. We have trips going every month. And so go to JNF.org or call 1 800 542 8733. Well, thank you very much for being on my show. It's been a great interview, and I look forward to actually meeting you in person at some point in the future. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram, at PaintedRock underscore Advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.